This is Alex. I'm from Boston. Hello, this is Jackie, and I'm from Houston. Hey, this is Rahul from Stanford. And we are the Premier Chefs. All right, welcome back, guys. I'm here with a friend of the pod, Ben Jacobs. Ben, welcome back. It's been a few weeks, but uh, we've spoken about ownership changes with you. We've spoken about player changes with you. I didn't really expect us to be having this conversation this early uh, in the Bowley era, but here we are. We're now about to talk about a manager change. Uh, but before we get into that, how are you doing? Yeah, really good. It never stops at Chelsea, does it? The window slam shut, and we think that that's the chaos over and then just days later there's more drama yeah there's there's drama always chaos with with Chelsea uh but let's get into it I know you've been covering Chelsea for the last uh, pretty much the whole year at this point um so like I said we spoke about ownership players but now let's talk about a managerial change uh so Todd Bowley Clear Lake group come in towards the end of May early part of June um was there from your sources or your from what you've heard always a feeling that this change would be made at some point uh, was the or was this expedited or something that came about over the course of the summer with additional responsibilities for Tuchel uh, and then I know a lot of people have reported including yourself that performances and results weren't part of it uh, but we've seen some some shaky results for Chelsea so I'm sure that may have played into uh, the decision and how soon it was taken. Yeah, I think so. The results alone didn't contribute to the sacking in the sense that the ownership group didn't look at Leeds United, Southampton and Dinamo Zagreb and say, that's three too many, we're going to make a change. But it presented them with an opportunity perhaps earlier than they had anticipated. And naturally, Thomas Tuchel had the timescale in his control if he was winning week in, week out. And therefore, the ownership group probably did use the results as a means of escalating the situation and making the change. So from a PR point of view, they're talking about this 100 days of assessment of the business. And because Todd Bowley is so hands on and as interim sporting director is at Cobham and is able to talk to staff and players directly, he's got a much bigger sense of the full picture at Chelsea. And then in terms of Thomas Tuchel, he had a very different relationship with Tuchel to Roman Abramovich because Abramovich was a distant owner. He left Tuchel to it. He had Marina and Bruce Buck in the middle, whereas Todd Bowley is essentially dealing with Thomas Tuchel more as interim sporting director. But it's a strange power dynamic because he's also the minority owner. And then with Baird Agbali representing the majority stakeholder, Thomas Tuchel was in a very difficult position because they're not only having a dynamic between manager and sporting director. And usually the manager wins that battle if they go head to head because they can escalate it to the board if they need to. But in this case, Todd Bowley is the voice of the board and of the sporting director. And that means that Thomas Tuchel had the authority and the expertise, but not ultimately the final say in the long term over his own future. And the truth is they fell out almost from day one. And I think that the new ownership group came in trying to respect a transitional period, whilst at the same time making sure that they assessed very thoroughly everything at the football club because they weren't able to do much due diligence in the build-up due to the speed and atypical nature of the sale. So then they came in and I think they realised very quickly with Thomas Tuchel that he is a hugely talented coach, but not necessarily the right fit within the structure. So then when they're looking at getting rid of Tuchel, they're thinking about all the other changes that are still going to happen. Is Thomas Tuchel right under a new sporting director? Is he right under a more data-led system? Is he right under a recruitment model that's prioritising youth and pathways because Chelsea are not going to spend 300-odd million in every single window? And that's where the fallouts began because the ownership group wanted to know everything, not only to micromanage, but because they're brand new at the club and they're going to be heavily reliant on data. And I think that Thomas Tuchel is much more gut instinct orientated. So on the one hand, they told Tuchel he would have full autonomy and they'd be empowered by his views. And on the other hand, whilst giving him that control and authority and seeing him 
pressurized by that and not always stepping up. They continued to delve into the data and have their own strategic meetings that led to different conclusions. Now, I must state there's two sides to every story. So Thomas Tuchel will no doubt tell a narrative around him winning a Champions League, him getting into cup finals and only missing out on penalties and his pedigree suggesting that he was warranted to have that authority and say and any interference in his training, his methods, his dressing room, his decision making was, in his view, unwarranted and unfair for new owners that were not only finding their feet at Chelsea Football Club, but within the football industry generally. And then the ownership group, I think, would argue that regardless of what decision was made, communication just broke down to the point where they were forced to take certain paths because Thomas Tuchel was not clear. And there's examples of that with Hakim Ziyech and Christian Pulisic, who were ultimately unclear whether they were going to be sold or not. Ziyech wanted the move to Ajax. Pulisic would have moved to Serie A if Juventus had made an offer. But then the next thing they know, they're in the starting lineup with Lukaku. There was obviously some debate over whether he was going to be sold permanently or loaned and whether there will definitely be this activation of the gentleman's agreement that gives him a second year's loan or whether now under Graham Potter he'll be brought back to the club and that was quite a divisive issue as well then I think what didn't help Tuchel was the fact that he got frustrated and openly criticised the instability and I think that he was just quite fatigued from the backstory the sanctions, the sale all of which put a lot of pressure and mental energy was required to deal with all of that and then suddenly there's a whole new sweeping wave of change and I think that contributed as well and it also doesn't help when you have the volume of outgoings either because there's been peerage during pre-season before Alonso departed where his head wasn't right before Lukaku departed even though that was very early in the window where his head wasn't right and even Aspilicueta as captain he stayed and Todd Bowley was a big part of that but in the earlier part of the window when Chelsea were in America, I think he was unsettled too and anticipating a move to Barcelona at that point. So when you sort of add it all up, you get quite a mentally fatigued manager in quite a mentally and physically fatigued dressing room that aren't quite right and in the place you'd expect them to be to start their season. Then you have the 4-0 loss to Arsenal, and the results shouldn't mean anything, but Tuchel is critical. And I think the ownership group are of the mindset, why be critical when you're a part of the process? You've got more control than any Chelsea manager has ever had, and yet there you are bemoaning the situation when you know perfectly well that there's going to be a record club spend still to come. And then from there onwards, lots of different things happened. Tuchel will argue that the ownership group displayed a lack of football knowledge. There's that now infamous story during the rounds that they pinned up a 4-4-3 formation without realising that there was an extra man in it. That's being denied, by the way, by the football club. But Thomas Tuchel may well continue to fuel that type of story as evidence that he was the football expert and his system was being interfered with. And then on the flip side, you have Bowley and the rest of the new American-led ownership group kind of intimating that every time they went to Thomas Tuchel, whether it was over Ronaldo, whether it was over Jules Koundé, whether it was on deadline day, he either delegated and got his agents to take meetings or he just didn't communicate and pick up calls enough or participate actively in the WhatsApp group. And if he's empowered and is the final decision maker, as the ownership group promised him to begin with, then you would argue from the ownership group's perspective that Tuchel has to respond. And if he's busy doing other things, then there becomes a delay and there becomes a friction. So I think all of that added up. And then probably the final thing to just note is that Tuchel's belief was perhaps that a new contract was close, which is paradoxical in his thinking because he feared getting the sack quite early as well because he could probably see the news coming even though he was maybe shocked about when it was delivered I think in pre-season he was paranoid that he was going to be replaced but his belief through sources close to him is also that he thought a new contract was coming and why because there was a move at the football club to secure everybody of note i.e. Reese James, soon to be Mason Mount, and of course, 
Thomas Tuchel. And then Todd Bowley came to Tuchel and said, no, this is only formative. We're not going to move this on until the window shuts and then we'll see where we're at. And I think that Tuchel was very disappointed by that as well because he saw it as a sign, even if he was still shocked by the manner in which he was sacked, that if Rhys James is getting compensated, if uh, record spend is happening, if Mason Mount has started his talks, if Mendy has began his talks, then things are being built around the manager. But where is the loyalty in the manager? And whereas he felt it might come and soon, Bowley and the ownership group were clear that they were not going to progress those contract talks any further at the point in time when Tuchel wanted escalation. And why did he want escalation? Well, only he can say, but my reading of it is he wanted escalation because he wanted the contract to show that his job was safe and that the club were loyal. And he never got that. And then, of course, weeks later, he was sacked. So I think there's a variety of different factors, but it doesn't have a great deal to do with the three losses other than if Tuchel had won every game, even if the ownership group didn't like him as manager, they would have had no choice but to continue with his services. Yeah, listening to you, uh, Ben, it just sounds like, I mean, it's been a chaotic year for Chelsea as a club, right? But it just sounds like since the ownership change, uh, it has been some chaos, some disruption, some some issue going on in the background. And uh, we haven't been, obviously, from the outside looking in, we haven't been able to to notice it that much. Uh, but I think when I think back to Tuchel and his time at PSG, there was a famous quote that came out and he said, I just want to be a coach. I just want to focus on what happens on the pitch. And it seems like, you know, throughout this year, he's had to do other things. He's had to take his focus off of the pitch and, and be the face of the the club in terms of the media with the uh, Brown Rich uh, issue. And then with the Bowley issue coming in, we, we've never actually heard from these owners and we never will. Uh, but Tuchel ended up being the, the face of it. And obviously, like you said, mental fatigue, physical fatigue, even going on vacation and still having to answer some of these questions, like you were saying, for Bowley and the group uh, doesn't help. So, And you could see that in his in his last few weeks with, with the club. There was just something missing. I know we had the mm-hmm. Tottenham game and he had that brilliant run down the, the pitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that there's just something didn't feel right. And we could always see that on the pitch. Uh, the other thing you mentioned about Alonso, it's funny you say that because when we met him, Jackie and I were in Charlotte or during the preseason tour, uh, we got to talk to him after the game and we said, hey, how do you feel about the result? A tough loss, even though it's preseason, you know, losing on penalties is never, never good. And his response was a little kind of like just, you know, whatever, it's it's preseason, it's, it's a training game. And that made us feel like his mind wasn't fully there and maybe that was something that was spreading uh, within the squad with players that were not happy with with the time and everything. Uh, so definitely some issues that even we could notice early on. Uh, it's obviously sad as a fan to see Tuchel leave because we we loved him. He brought us success. Uh, he brought us back closer to the club in the sense that Lampard was a, a legend. He was let go. Anyone following him had a tough, tough task ahead of them. But Tuchel filled those boots pretty well. And it's sad to see him go, but... Again, with any ownership group we've seen in the Premier League in sport, they always want to bring in their man. And in this case, Graham Potter is their man. Uh, from your sources, from what you've heard, how early were these talks in terms of Graham Potter? Was it in and around when Cucurella was being discussed with Brighton? Uh, I know um, Todd Bowley met with Paul Barber, who's the CEO of Brighton, uh, as well as at a, at a dinner or an executive meeting for Premier League. Was that something that was discussed or... Um, they just along the way were identifying potential replacements, and Potter was something someone they they thought was would be a good fit for the model overall. Well, I think there's two parts to this. So the approach for Potter only came after Thomas Tuchel was sacked, and that wasn't only out of respect for Tuchel but also Brighton. And the reason why Bowley was so keen to follow formal process is because. He's developed a strong relationship with, as you say, Paul Barber, the CEO at Brighton. And that definitely led to a speedy resolution of landing Potter. And as I reported a few days ago, there was a verbal agreement late in the evening. Potter said his goodbyes. The fact that he also has a release clause is easier too, because much like a footballer with a release clause, if you pay it, then there's really nothing the club, the manager's at 
can do to stop their boss leaving if he so wishes. And Graham Potter has been waiting for the right role. He turned down Spurs. At that point, they didn't have Champions League football. Chelsea offers him European football. His first game now will be in the Champions League, which says it all really about the step up that he's making. And because of that loss in Croatia, it's already a must-win game as far as Chelsea are concerned. So the actual hiring of Potter came after Dinamo Zagreb, but the speed at which it happened tells you that they had been planning this for at least a couple of weeks. And my understanding is that the frustration after America and particularly that Arsenal loss catalyzed the whole process. And then privately, Chelsea were looking at options, in particular names that could work with a soon-to-be-appointed sporting director. And this is normal because they're inheriting things from the old regime, including Thomas Tuchel, but they know that they're going to appoint a sporting director, very possibly a technical director, and there's been a raft of changes at board level. They're going to be more data-led. They're going to be more like Liverpool in their recruitment model. So even though ideally you would have a manager for continuity and a few others at the club that have left that they probably would have wanted to hang on to. And then you build the team around it. In a weird way, it can actually be quite helpful to have a blank slate. And that will breed instability and to some extent fury from the fan base in the short term because of how popular Thomas Tuchel was. But when you've got that blank slate, you're not constrained. You're not having to think about who is going to be right for Thomas Tuchel or Who can we add when we've already got people in these roles? Whereas now every single hire is a new ownership hire. And they've made so many that they've almost taken on instant and full accountability. And some may argue that it's too fast, too soon, and only time will tell. But now they've wrestled everything away from the old regime in a matter of months. So if it doesn't work on the football field, Potter is there higher. If it doesn't work at a strategic or a business level, the new board is there higher. If the recruitment model and the data-led decisions don't work, they're all there hires. If the marketing doesn't work, they've just brought in, or are about to anyway, a sort of director of marketing. And therefore, every aspect of the football club now is very much theirs in a very short space of time. And then in terms of how they learned about Potter, it was a mixture really of due diligence coupled with that growing feeling that Thomas Tuchel might go imminently. And that wasn't down to one moment. It was sort of a niggly fear that as his elevated responsibility shows him not to be the right fit, coupled with the rant in pre-season, coupled with the frustrating transfer window in the earlier part, there started to be this tag over Tuchel as only a coach. And that's not what the ownership group wanted. But they then said, let's wait. Let's watch the first few games of the season because there was still that respect for him as a coach. Then, of course, Bowley had more time to start talking to players. My understanding, by the way, is that the players were hugely complimentary of Thomas Tuchel. So there was by no means a revolt in the dressing room. But Lukaku did a kind of exit interview of sorts, nothing formal, but he got to have his say to Todd Bowley. And that, again, is the byproduct of Bowley not being Abramovich, not being only an owner. He's sporting director. So if he's helping to negotiate Lukaku's exit, there will be talks with Romelu Lukaku and Thomas Tuchel will have come up. And it's the same with Aspilicueta. It's the same for the new signings. So Bowley had more knowledge than anybody, really, certainly on the ownership group of Thomas Tuchel in his dressing room and then Berdag Agbali, as I said right from day one, I think everyone reacted when they thought Bowley was leading a bid and then they were like, hang on a minute, it's Clear Lake Capital, they're the majority owner and they're an investment firm and everyone went nuts and I remember reporting that that was always the plan and that Berdag Agbali would be hands on and a lot of Chelsea fans at the time said, no, that's just PR, they're an investment firm, they'll be looking to flip the clubs. And I said, well, they're there for a guaranteed minimum of 10 years. Berdad is a football fan. And he, again, has proven to be Bowley's right-hand man, or really equal, to be honest, because let's not forget he represents the majority shareholder of the football club. And those two are very aware of what's going on in Cobham. And as soon as I think results turned, really 
by the middle of August at the latest, around the time that this Kukurea transfer happened, the ownership group were talking to Kukurea, they were talking to Paul Barber, and they were well informed about Graham Potter and his reputation. And they were well aware from their advisors and the old regime that he was a hot property, that Spurs had looked at him, that he'd had some European football from his time in Sweden, that he was very good with young players, that he's a people person. He's tactically astute and the formations that he plays, not too dissimilar at large to Chelsea. He plays with a, a back three as well and 3-4-3 is one of his favoured formations so when you kind of add that up you see the fit and because he's young and because he's got potential and because they didn't feel that he would be divisive on a personal level away from the football side of things they really felt early on that he would be able to make the step up and handle this dressing room and obviously the input of Barber was one thing Make no mistake, Barber's not there at a Premier League event where Bowley then has a dinner after it saying, if you like my manager, these are his best qualities. They very much picked up those conversations a little bit later. But it was an opportunity just to find out what the dynamic was like. And then obviously when Kukurea signs, you get another perspective. And the final thing to say is that Dan Ashworth recommended Graham Potter as well. And he and Potter obviously worked together at Brighton too. And let's not forget that the Chelsea owners hosted the Newcastle owners and PIF, the majority owner at Chelsea, are part of the investment portfolio of Clear Lake Capital. So Berdag Agbali knows PIF and Amanda Staveley pretty well, and more so now because they're both managing Premier League football clubs, and Dan Ashworth is now the director of football at Newcastle United. So you can see very quickly that Bowley and Berdad have been able to make connections fast, and that allows them to get first-hand accounts of what is right and wrong for their football club. And I think people think football clubs are just rivals. And if someone calls up Dan Ashworth or Paul Barber and says, tell me about Graham Potter, they're going to go, no, not telling you anything. Because why? Are you trying to spy on us or are you trying to take the manager? We're not telling you a thing. It just doesn't work like that. It's very much keep your enemies closer. And I think that is, again, a change of approach between a Glazer owner and a Bramovich owner and even one or two others like maybe Daniel Levy at Spurs they keep their distance they're quite stoic they're quite business-like but I think with the more hands-on owners Amanda Staveley at Newcastle Todd Bowley at Chelsea because they relish the day-to-day and really get their hands dirty they're interacting with their peers at other clubs a lot more and Sue Whelan's another example of that at my club Leicester City and as a result they meet not just professionally, but personally. They bounce ideas off each other. They look at collaborative approaches that benefit the clubs and the Premier League at large. So you suddenly have this dynamic now where a lot of clubs that fans perceive to be rivals are starting to work together. And that's part of the new approach and strategy of Todd Bowley as well. And that then allowed him to get pretty easy access to Graham Potter, which ultimately catalyzed a very speedy appointment because he was the number one choice. Yeah, and it was reported right away that Potter was the number one choice. And it all kind of makes sense now because you saw uh, the PIF group, I believe it was at the Leicester game uh, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And, and the feeling was, oh, they're just doing, you know, relationship building, like you're saying. But there was a little bit more there. Uh, we've also seen Seth Ruby, who's a, a an intermediary who was at the, the game last week against West Ham. So, uh, like you said, Boli and Iqbali are building their their contacts and their relationships. Uh, and just to add to the Clear Lake point, I saw uh, Jose Feliciano, who's another uh, partner in the Clear Lake group, at the women's game in Portland. And he was there uh, interacting with Emma Hayes. So Clear Lake is fully involved and heavily part of, you know, uh, everything that happens on and off the pitch. So for any fans that are wondering uh, why Bali or any of these other guys are involved, they, they're there, like you said, for a 10-year commitment. And they want to make this a success as much as possible. Uh, Ben, you mentioned with Potter playing a back three. So we're going to see similar players, uh, at least in the defensive area. There's one question I have about the transfers before we go into maybe some of the attacking players that may change. Aubameyang. This was believed to be a Tuchel kind of transfer. He requested it or he at least pushed for it. Uh, They've worked together at Dortmund. He comes in on deadline day. Less than a week later, 60 minutes after uh, Aubameyang's debut, Tuchel's gone. 
what have you heard about the thinking behind this transfer? And um, at that point, if they really wanted Ronaldo, why not just go for him? Because that I believe by deadline day, they knew within a week or a couple of weeks, Tuchel wasn't going to be there. So why still bring in an Aubameyang? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? And you're so close to the end of the window that if the realisation from the early part of the season is that Chelsea need goals and Aubameyang is right there and has played in the Premier League before and been prolific during his Arsenal days, then you agree with Tuchel and you move for the player, even if you know that Thomas Tuchel might not last. And to some extent, you back the manager and at that point don't reveal to Aubameyang that you're considering changing the manager and of course they're not going to intimate that that he might be playing under a new manager first of all because they may not have 100% made up their mind at that point but the second thing to note is just as soon as the player gets any uncertainty about instability and change they could have ended up with no striker so they almost had to just follow through on that and as I told you right at the top too people may look at this now as Aubameyang arriving a few days later, Tuchel being sacked and always the plan. And the decision to get rid of Tuchel probably was bubbling for a number of weeks, but the actual timing of it was not, in my opinion, and having spoken to sources, meant to quite be this immediate. And if Chelsea had won comfortably at Dinamo Zagreb, they could have easily left it a month or two and just seen how things went on the football field without a window being open and then maybe look to make a change if things weren't working towards the break before the World Cup. So I don't think the intent in seeing a Bamiyang sign was to know 100% that just days later Tuchel would go. I think that that was a very last minute decision that just capped off the line of thinking that they were going to get rid of Tuchel sooner rather than later. And then from Aubameyang's point of view, the ownership group were very quick to call him and reassure him that he is still part of the plans. And let's see how Graham Potter deploys him. Aubameyang, like anybody else, is now just part of the new manager's thinking. It's up to Graham Potter who he plays and how, but certainly a good player to have at the football club because he's an instant source of goals and that's exactly what Chelsea need at the moment. So I think that it's lucky in many ways because if there was any possibility that the ownership group either chose to or felt they had to get rid of Thomas Tuchel earlier, even though I think it would have been crazy to act during the window with only a few days left, then at that point, they may not have got Aubameyang. They may not have got Zakaria. They may not have got any other players either that they signed late in the window because every single player is looking at the same thing from the outside in and saying, yikes, you've only been at the club for three months and there's been this huge upheaval. So I think that that's the blessing in disguise, really. Not so much for Aubameyang, who may well be very disappointed because he probably made the decision to join based upon Thomas Tuchel. He only signed for Barcelona in January and Xavi said he wanted to keep the players. So he was quite happy to stay at the camp now, but there was Thomas Tuchel saying, come and join up with me again. And then just a couple of days later, Thomas Tuchel's gone and now he has to kind of earn his worth under Graham Potter. So not ideal from Aubameyang's perspective, but by the same token, it could end up being a blessing in disguise. And then the line of thinking over Aubameyang, is really interesting because Thomas Tuchel started the window saying that he didn't want an out-and-out number nine. And Chelsea were obviously looking at Sterling and got him, looking at Rafinha and got him um, to the point of an agreement only to find that he wanted to join Barcelona. So they couldn't have done much more with either player. The Sterling deal got done, the Rafinha fee got agreed, but those were the two that they wanted. And then as a consequence, Chelsea turned down the opportunity to enter the race for Gabriel Jesus and they bid late for Ricarlison as well, but it was always clear that he was going to go to Spurs. And then I think that during pre-season and the early part of the season, Thomas Tuchel's line of thinking changed and he realised that he did just need an out-and-out source of goals and didn't want to rely only on Amando Broya to come off the bench and add to his ideal starting 11. And that's where he turns to somebody that he trusts. So then Aubameyang 
get started. And then I think the window got so close to ending that everyone just wanted to follow through on that signing. With Ronaldo and the ownership group, it's important to note that their intrigue was, yes, based upon his numbers, but also what he would do to the brand. And that is a really key point to make because Todd Bowley is essentially the same at the moment as a politician, as his sporting director anyway. He gets handed a document which is like a briefing from a team of football experts and then he's got the information at his fingertips. But if you ask Todd Bowley to tell you about Ronaldo's style, about the last 10 seasons, about his development as a player, about his early Manchester United days and so on, about where he changes his style through age, about his longevity, about his personality. All of that will only come from other people. It's not just there in Todd Bowley's brain. It's it's there in briefing documents. It's there through data. And every day he stays in this role and at the football club, he will obviously be able to develop that knowledge to be more innate but right now he is reliant on information so when people sort of say Thomas Bowley desperately wants Frankie de Jong Thomas Bowley desperately wants Cristiano Ronaldo it's more that the data and the experts that Bowley trusts are telling him that that is the right choice for the football club either on a football level or a business level and then Bowley brings that information to the table and tries and gets a deal done so then why didn't they just go back for Ronaldo late in the window? One, because I don't think they wanted to undermine Tuchel. Two, because at that point they won't have had any clue as to whether Graham Potter wanted Ronaldo. And three, because there was still no indication that Manchester United would have sanctioned the deal to Chelsea. So Ronaldo wanted Chelsea earlier in the window. By the way, Manchester United looked at Pulisic and Chelsea intimated they didn't want to loan him to a rival. So then Manchester United could have easily said the same thing. We're not going to loan or sell Cristiano Ronaldo to a direct domestic rival so we don't know that part of the puzzle as to whether it was even feasible to get Ronaldo but what we do know is that Tuchel said very clearly no and thought that was the end of the matter and six or seven times Bowley came back to Tuchel and said but why not Ronaldo but why not Ronaldo and that caused a lot of friction between the two as well so if Bowley wanted to show that he was kind of maverick which would have been ironic because they thought Tuchel was maverick and that's partly why they got rid of him. But if Bowley wanted to put his foot down, of course he could have just gone to Mendes and said, get me Ronaldo. And then Ronaldo would have had to try and persuade Manchester United through Mendes to uh, allow him to make that move. And only then would we have known the answer as to whether it was possible or not. But I think that Bowley was still very conscious, even if Tuchel was potentially under threat, that if he was to take control of that particular transfer and allow Ronaldo to come to Chelsea against his manager's wishes, then that could have been detrimental in getting Graham Potter because Potter will have known that, he'll have heard that, and it puts a different complexion onto the football club that Graham Potter walks into if he fears that Todd Bowley is actually going to make those final decisions. And I think the last thing that Bowley wants is to be seen as the owner, the decision maker, the operational controller, the interim sporting director, and to some extent, if he's picking players, the de facto head coach. Because that not only is that not part of who his personality is, he's much more a delegator, he's much more amicable and amenable than maybe certain fans think he is at this point because he'll have a reputation now as being quite cutthroat but this is very atypical for Bowley and you only have to look at the LA Dodgers and the longevity of their staff there to see that so I think that's also why he didn't want to be seen to step over the line in the case of Ronaldo he said to his manager you'll get the final say his manager even if he was soon to be outgoing said no and although Bowley pushed it as hard as he could and created friction in doing so, when Tuchel kept saying no, eventually Bowley gave up and then turned his attention to a player that Thomas Tuchel and Aubameyang had said yes to. Yeah, and and that's that's fair. I think uh, a lot of our the fans are questioning the 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 Aubameyang transfer, but I think your explanation makes sense. And um, long term, I think with Potter, it's like you said, a decision that he knows. Bowley won't step over him if he says no or, or isn't in favor of something. A um, couple of questions before we wrap it up, uh, Ben. So we now look at a clean slate for all the players 
even though we know there's going to be a back three and we can almost guess who those three may be. Um, Cucurella obviously has worked with Potter before, so he may know what to expect. But some of the attacking players, a lot of fans have been asking for a change. Mason Mount hasn't really performed this season. Kai Havertz only one goal. Uh, Ziyech was uh, underwhelming, I would say, against Zagreb. So a lot of players have a new chance. Who do you think maybe a Pulisic Ziyech may get an opportunity to shine again and, and solidify a spot in this new system, 3-4-3, like you mentioned, but I also know he plays a 3-5-2. So um, your thoughts on that? And then I have a, another question about what I've heard about a sporting director. So let's talk about the players first. Yeah, I mean, Potter can play the 3-5-2. He can play Chelsea's current formation. He can play a 3-4-3. He can play a 4-3-2-1 or a 4-2-3-1. And all of those have kind of been trialled in different ways at Brighton over the course of the last 12 months or so. So that's very reassuring to Chelsea fans, I think, because he comes in with a reasonably similar mentality to Thomas Tuchel. Potter loves to press as well. The main difference and this is going to be interesting to me, is that Brighton naturally had less of the ball than Chelsea and sat deep and didn't have to boss a lot of games. And then when they got on the ball, regardless of what formation they played in, they were very direct, they were very fast, whereas Chelsea play intricate movements around the box. And sometimes that works, sometimes that can be quite frustrating. And I'm going to be really interested to see what changes because my perception of Chelsea this season is that they have a lot of the ball, but in non-threatening areas. And you look at Wesley Fofana, for example, at Leicester, he'd have never got that far forwards regularly. And in his first few Chelsea games, he's been able to amble up to the halfway line and get into quite advanced positions. And then you've got Reese James, the predominant source of creativity and the right has been better than the left for Chelsea so far this season. Although obviously with Kukurea and Chilwell, they have both contributed as well. But I'm always really impressed with Chelsea's balance on the right-hand side. Whereas on the left, I think that Kukurea has added something. And obviously Ben Chilwell counts as adding something, but he's come off the bench and done that particularly against West Ham United. So what I like about Chelsea is that right-sided balance. But what I don't like about Chelsea is that as soon as they get it into the final third it's like they stop that swift movement forwards and that change of direction and they turn into a short passing very intricate team that perhaps are trying a bit too much to walk the ball into the back of the net and that's why with Aubameyang, maybe they've got a bit more of a focal point. That's why I'd like to see more game time from Breuer as well. But regardless of what Chelsea do and who does it, they just need to be more direct, more progressive and faster with speed of movement and speed of thought, especially in central areas and wide areas, as I've already said. Um, I love the energy that they come forwards with and sometimes the directness. But we've not really seen a final ball this season. And in central areas, when players have cut inside or have floated into that number 10 or gone box to box as a number eight or even being in a false nine position and the wide forwards, they've just not got going. So Potter, I think, will give everyone a fair chance. And I don't think that's just the attackers. I think that he'll look at Kepa and Mendy. I think he will have a good look at Conor Gallagher and decide on his game time comparative to some of the more senior players. I think that when he's fit again, Kante uh, will have a role to play. He's a very uh, Potter-like player. And then when we look at the attackers, I just expect less chopping and changing. So I think that Potter will have faith to develop and improve the uh, players that he inherits, at least between now and January. And whereas Tuchel, particularly in those last 50 games of his 100, would be a bit inconsistent. You know, Ziyech wants to leave the club, he starts. Pulisic is unhappy, he starts. Uh, Gallagher's future is up in the air. He starts and gets sent off, comes back from suspension, back into the side again and gets given a second opportunity. Uh, Kante and Jorginho, future up in the air. Uh, they both began the season. So these are the kind of things that infuriate dressing rooms because what Tuchel did is he held two different meetings. One for the players he thought was committed or put their hand up and said they are committed and then a secondary meeting for the players that might be outgoing or wanted their future resolved. And then some of the 
players in meeting A were not part of the squad or were not selected and some of the players in meeting B were. So he's actually creating a physical division by almost saying you're my A-list meeting and you're my B-list meeting, but then he's taking players from that B meeting and starting them ahead of players in the A meeting, which makes the commitment of those in the A meeting uh, feel a little bit odd because those players are kind of wandering exactly where they are in the pecking order. With Potter, I think you'll get more stability of selection and the fact that he comes from a smaller club and squad and is used to picking a starting eleven uh, with more consistency uh, will be continued at Chelsea. So then in terms of specifics, I think it wouldn't remotely surprise me if Christian Pulisic is the big beneficiary because Potter's bag is about improving players and Pulisic is not lacking in talent. He's just lacking in confidence. And if you look at a player that needs desperately to find that form between now and a World Cup, and if you look at how he plays as a lot more of a leader for the national team, if he can find a bit of form in front of goal and a bit more consistency of his passing and just get back that confidence. I think he's taking that fraction too much time on the ball, which tends to happen when a player isn't that confident. It's not as innate. You start to doubt yourself. And I think when confidence is the problem and a new manager comes in and really man manages you, that can make all the difference. So I think there's big scope for him to improve and be more integral. And then Ziyech is one to watch because he was unhappy under Tuchel, but who's to say that he won't relish a second opportunity under Potter? Just look at Jorginho and different circumstances. He wasn't that happy. He was open to a move. Uh, Koulibaly arrives. They're really good friends. And now Jorginho is loving life at Chelsea. And that sounds an odd point to make, but tiny marginal gains can make all the difference. It's the same with any of us. If you don't love your job and then one day a new hire joins, they sit next to you and you click then every single day you're sitting next to a friend and you're quite loving your job and you've got someone to have a drink with after work. And I think that's the same with like a new signing, like Koulibaly for Jorginho. It just energizes uh, Jorginho and to some extent, any new signing, the dressing room. And naturally it's the same with a new manager as well. So I think Pulisic will be the big beneficiary. I think that Broya could also find himself playing even more and I think that Aubameyang is one of those 50-50s. Let's see what direction um, Potter goes in. Um, and then, of course, the other key question um, is going to be Ben Chilwell, because whereas I think under Tuchel, if both were fit and there were three centre-backs that were playing in Koulibaly, in Silva and Fafana, then Kukurea is going to play in his preferred position as an inverted left-back or a straight left back, right? And then most would say, if everyone's fit and you were picking your ultimate Chelsea team right now, as of today, with everyone on their form, everyone on their full potential, I think most Chelsea fans would pick Ben Chilwell there over Kukurea, but it's an interesting debate. Uh, Whereas with Potter, he knows and likes Kukurea and was extremely sad to see him go. So where does that leave Ben Chilwell? And I think that's really interesting because there's depth everywhere for Chelsea, but where there's a real headache decision for me is in that um, left wing-back or inverted left-back position. Is it Chilwell or is it Kukurea? And I'll just be really interested to see who Potter picks. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely interested in that left wing-back, left centre, left uh, back position, because like you said, we have two excellent players. One knows the manager but one's almost coming into form with his last week's heroics against West Ham. Uh, and it almost feels like every time Ben Chilwell has dropped down the pecking order uh, against an Alonso, in this case, a Cucurella, he almost steps it up uh, and forces his way back into the first 11. So it's definitely an area that as we we're going to be looking out for. And I think uh, in the attack, like you were mentioning, we, we are slow, we are predictable. We are not, uh, direct sometimes and I, I'm looking forward to seeing how Potter changes that and gets us ticking a little bit better and ultimately getting uh, goals up on the on the score sheet um, it almost feels like at this point we're seven games in uh, into the season it's a new start uh, we're starting our season from this point forward uh, obviously there are no games this weekend rightly so but uh, Potter now gets some time to work with the players for the next three four days going into that uh, Salzburg game on Wednesday so Hopefully we see a different different Chelsea where we should uh, usually bounce back with the manager change. Uh, ben, you spoke about the sporting director. Uh, we've heard a few names. You and I have actually spoken about a few names uh, over the summer. 
does Potter now play a role in in identifying who this is, or is someone already been identified who picked Graham Potter, and so now they are going to kind of it's going to be the reverse, and uh, Potter has to work with this person. How do you see this going? Yeah, there's conflicting messages from different sources, but my understanding has always been that there is not a sporting director in waiting yet. There's a variety of candidates that have and will continue to be considered. And therefore, Graham Potter will help with almost the final stage of the process. But there's still multiple names that Chelsea are looking at with a view to getting somebody in probably within the next month or six weeks at the latest. And that will obviously depend on the candidate as well, because certain candidates might either be attached to a club or have a period of gardening leave to see out. And I don't think that that's really going to affect the decision if there was a free agent available today versus somebody that took the job today but couldn't start until November or December because they've got to wait three months, then Chelsea would wait three months. But they absolutely want the new sporting director and possibly a technical director as well in place by the opening day of the window. And opening day of the window, by the way, is not as you and me see it. Opening day of the window is probably three or four weeks before the window starts. Let's just say the 1st of December, because if the window opens and someone walks through the door, that puts a very different complexion on your prep and how far behind you might be on certain deals. One of the advantages, though, is that Todd Bowley's done the job. And I've said this many, many times that right now Chelsea fans will look at Todd Bowley as interim sporting director and they'll judge the window retrospectively and they'll be very impressed by the ambition. Some fans will be delighted with the arrivals. Others might be more focused on some of the targets that have missed out and everybody will be relatively reassured by the level of spending regardless because it sort of shows that the new ownership group are prepared to match the levels of spending and in fact surpass them comparative to the old regime. So I respect and appreciate that people will have different opinions on the window and on Todd Bowley right now, but one long-term advantage of him being interim sporting director is that there's not an owner I can think of, not at an elite level club, that has been in this position as a operational controller, as chairman, as minority owner, and with Baird Agag Bali, a majority owner as well, who have been so hands-on, who have had so much face time with the players, who are aware of all the agents, who now understand the negotiation process. Heading into January, that's really going to help because a new sporting director will be able to almost shadow Bowley for that month prep until the window opens and get a real sense of what's being prepped. And then the other thing that will help Chelsea is just January windows, even in a World Cup year, are always slower than summer windows. So Chelsea, I think, will probably look to strengthen the midfield area as their main priority. And then they might add an attacking option, whether that's a forward or a more creative-minded player. And then from there... What's the situation with the goalkeeper or now goalkeepers, plural, because Mendy hasn't had a great start to the season and Kepas could still want to leave. And then they'll be looking at young players as well. So they'll be back for Edson Alvarez for sure. And then I think they'll be looking for one other more creative minded player. And then naturally people because of Potter's arrival, we'll be saying, what about Caicedo? What about McAllister? And so on. And let's wait and see what Potter wants and what Chelsea have got cooking. But I think that with the sporting director, they've not made a final decision yet. And the main reason for that is because they really, really wanted Michael Edwards. He was their final decision. And they made Edwards an exceptional offer. And from what I'm told, Edwards was blown away by the project. He was really, really excited by it. And they effectively made him an offer that they thought he couldn't refuse. They didn't just try and get him. They repeatedly went back and held multiple conversations and they courted him. But they've still been told the same answer, which is that he is not available in the short or the medium term. And he's been very, very firm. And even though some Chelsea sources are still talking about them keeping in contact with Edwards and making sure that he stays on their radar, I think the Chelsea ownership group want a sporting director in ASAP because they don't want to go through another window like this. And they want to make sure that they don't put strain on Potter 
because they will have learned some lessons from the last kind of three months with Thomas Tuchel. So at the moment, that rules Edwards out. But I think we have to call it a 99% ruled out, not 100% ruled out because they still very much respect him. So then you're left with Paul Mitchell, who's at Monaco at the moment. He is on the Monaco board, but there's big changes at Monaco. And make no mistake, Mitchell wants the job. He was touted as a possible Chelsea technical director in April, and he's really, really keen. And I think that there'd be no problems whatsoever getting him to leave Monaco. So that's one to watch. Uh, what's interesting about Mitchell is that he worked with Pochettino at Spurs and they had a tremendous relationship. So if Mitchell was close or Mitchell was in waiting, then could that have influenced the decision-making to go for Poch over Potter? And the fact that they went straight for Potter without any real serious conversation with Pochettino probably again illustrates that Paul Mitchell has not yet agreed anything, much like any other sporting director. And then you've got Bertra, Atletico Madrid. Atleti have shot that one down. There's been no approach yet. And then some say Maxwell is being considered who uh, used to be at PSG. My understanding is that's not the case. And that although Maxwell might have been explored, the manner in which he left PSG, albeit with Luis Campos coming in and new ownership, was not ideal. And I think that there are some question marks about Maxwell and his experience and suitability for the role. So I think another name to watch, uh, only because when Chelsea owners first came in, he was definitely a name that they explored. But I think the more they learn about Maxwell, the more doubts there are. And even with Mitchell, it's going to be very interesting with Graham Potter to see if that changes the dynamic because if you've got an inexperienced manager at this level who's young, then you've got an inexperienced ownership group in this industry, despite the fact that they've got excellent pedigree outside of it. If you then brought in a hot, up-and-coming, young uh, name, a sporting director, then where's the experience? And um, that might change their line of thinking a little bit now, which is why Potter's input, I think, is going to be very important because if he's comfortable with the sporting director, the contact book, the level of experience, he's already bringing a recruitment specialist anyway to Chelsea, then I think that will finalise the line of thinking within the ownership group into what direction to move. So I think it's quite a smart decision to give Potter some of the say rather than just bring somebody in. Um, and probably the final thing to say is that um, now they've gone for Potter, um, even though it's purely hypothetical. I think in an ideal world, if Dan Ashworth had been available and not gone to Newcastle, I think they would have taken Dan Ashworth all day long, um, unless, of course, Michael Edwards had taken the job. But it's just unfortunate that Ashworth isn't leaving Newcastle. He's heavily invested in that project and he's only just joined. So that's the example of obviously a perfect fit, but it's one that is unattainable to Chelsea at this point. So we're no closer to a sporting director at the time of recording, but what we do know now is the process that Potter will have a say and that they are obviously looking to appoint that sporting director before the World Cup. And the before the World Cup part is new because before they sat Thomas Tuchel, they were actually saying in the month of September they would like to have a sporting director. And now Potter's come in. I think they're just going to take a breath. And, um, you know, if they sign someone that's available now and is a free agent, they can obviously start in the month of September uh, but if they have to wait for the right candidate, as long as they're there by the January window, that's exactly what the football club will do. Yeah, it, it sounds like there's still a lot of pieces of the puzzle that need to need to be put in place. But the Bolly era has started similarly uh, with the kind of chaos that we came to expect with Roman. Um, obviously, a lot more involvement from the owner or the um, minority owner in this case. Uh, but we look forward as Chelsea fans. That's all we can do is look forward to what the club will go on to achieve or the next month, next few months and season, of course. Um, ben, is Graham Potter walks into a job that is definitely a step up from Brighton. No disrespect to Brighton. Um, he walks into a locker room where he looks around and he sees Reese James with the Champions League medal. He sees Mason Mount with the Champions League medal. Players that are significantly younger um, than he is. How does he manage the situation and what expectations do you think the board Bowley are going to put on him for the season? Uh, before I let you go, that's my final question. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, I think the first thing is that Graham Potter is not walking in solo. He's got a team. Right. And that team that have come from Brighton have been managing and coaching and recruiting for a smaller football team on paper and in terms of resources that are currently fourth in the Premier League. So Graham Potter's reputation is big and any young player will know that. They're not going to see the manager and say, you're inexperienced, we don't respect you. And everybody also talks about Potter being up and coming as well. And he is in terms of the progression because he was only at Ostersund in 2011 and he left that club in 2018. So then after 2018, he's gone to Swansea, to Brighton and to Chelsea all in a four-year period. And that's why people talk about the rise. But let's not forget that Graham Potter is 47 years of age. He's not a 37-year-old manager like Amarim at Sporting. And he's been in a number of different dressing rooms too from his senior playing career, such as Birmingham and Stoke and Southampton and West Brom. I think he had a loan spell at Northampton as well. So each of those experiences as player and as manager will have given him different egos and different scenarios. And then he's educated. He's got a master's degree. He knows how to handle people. So there will be an instant respect for Graham Potter. And there has to be, because a lot of the names that you've mentioned, say like a Reese James, for example, or a Ben Chilwell, these uh, players that are part of the England setup and who were their FA looking at as a possible successor to Graham Potter, uh, to um, Gareth Southgate, Graham Potter. So they will know from talking to others and Kukurea can tell them firsthand what kind of manager he is. And then there's always handover and there's always transition. So not absolutely everyone on the football department side of Chelsea that was under Tuchel is going to leave. So training doesn't just change overnight. Dressing room mentality and culture doesn't just change. And there's a mutual respect as well. So uh, Potter won't come in and make wholesale changes. I don't see him changing the captain, wildly changing the formation. I still think that he'll give a chance to the core players under Thomas Tuchel. And then because there's others that are out of form, he'll have some decisions to be made. And really what this Chelsea room want is unity. They want openness. They want transparency. They want a manager that talks to everyone as a group so they're aware of the plan. And then they want a manager that talks to people individually. So if you're not part of that day on day, if you're not part of the ideal starting 11 or squad, then where do you fit in? Are you a Champions League player? Are you a smaller game player? Are you a cup player? And I think Potter will just take his time to build that respect through the group and through individual relationships. And that's ultimately his strength. But I don't think you're going to see any huge disrespect. I think the only um, interesting thing is just that every manager is obviously entitled to have their own decisions over players. And when you're a new manager, he doesn't have to put any promises or faith in players that are new to the football club. So if he decides that his back three is Kukurea, left-sided defender with Ben Chilwell and then Thiago Silva and then on the uh, right-hand side of the centre-backs, Fafana, then where does that leave Koulibaly? If he decides that he's not going to start Aubameyang, then he's made no commitment to do that. It's not his player. He didn't have any conversations with Aubameyang before he joined. So there's one or two players, I think, that will sweat in that respect because Aubameyang may turn around and say, well, at my age, I only made the move because Tuchel told me that I was going to be playing in all the big games. And Graham Potter may say, sorry, you're not. Uh, who knows? Uh, there's no indication that's what he's going to do specifically with Aubameyang or with Koulibaly. But I just use those two as examples. And Zakaria is another one. You know, you get brought in on loan. And then does uh, Potter have other ideas? We have to wait and see. But I, I think that the risk is not really in the dressing room side and winning over the players because a new manager brings a new energy and tends to unify a dressing room in the short term. And um, I, I think that Potter will have no problem doing that. I, I think the risk comes in the fact that, you know, Chelsea have just got difficult games coming up, having already lost three matches. They've got a massive Champions League game away at Sol uh, against uh, Salzburg um, at home. And then uh, they've got a Liverpool game. Liverpool, and yeah. um, 
you know, if if you get a backlash from Liverpool, who uh, also had a very poor result to Napoli, and then if the Salzburg result um, doesn't go according to plan, then there becomes kind of immediate pressure on Graham Potter. And I think that's the challenge that everyone knows it's a risk because he's never done the Champions League. Um, he's never been in a dressing room this size. He's never had these resources. He's never had this budget. So the, the risk for me is not in getting the players to respect him. The risk to me is in getting the players' confidence up instantly. And, and that's not just down to respect. That's also down to circumstance. So if Salzburg and Liverpool goes against Chelsea, um, then you suddenly start to kind of uh, look at outside pressure and, and fan base frustration. And um, that's kind of why... Honestly, I would have quite liked Chelsea, um, even though I, you know, I fully respect obviously the decision of the FA and the Premier League and huge condolences um, as someone with great affection for the Queen. So I'm not in any way saying this last point as uh, I wanted them to play uh, despite her passing, uh, quite the opposite. Um, as much as I empathise with fans that are disappointed, uh, I am all for uh, showing respect uh, to the Queen through this unified form of postponement. Uh, but if you take that out of the equation, if you look at the fixtures, I think away at Fulham uh, would have helped Potter, even though he'd have had less time to prepare for the Champions League, because I think away at Fulham is a win for me. And then you enter a home game against Salzburg with instant momentum. And then you get a home result against Salzburg. And there's maybe um, a kind of building process. And then you've got a home game against Liverpool, who are out of form. And you suddenly think, OK, things could move in the direction. Um, and then from there, actually, Chelsea's fixtures are OK for me, at least in the Premier League. They've got, I think, away at Palace. They've got home to Wolves. Uh, they've got away at Villa. They've got, I think, away at Brentford. So that's a really good run of games for Graham Potter because they're matches that you expect Chelsea uh, to win. Um, but now it's like he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting. And on the one hand, that's more time with his squad. But on the other hand, you know, his first debut is Champions League and it's at home at Stamford Bridge. And um, it becomes risk reward because uh, if he wins it, it's like few. And then again, the same momentum that I've already alluded to. But if he loses it, then it's suddenly Liverpool at home straight afterwards. And then that's back to back home games and fans get a bit jittery. So... Uh, I personally, if I was Potter, would have probably liked to just be unveiled, go straight to Fulham. Uh, I think they'd have beaten Fulham. Um, and then, you know, you've got something to bring into the Champions League. Uh, but I understand it from both ways. There's probably Chelsea fans that would argue the gap uh, helps him prepare for Champions League, um, gives him more time with his players uh, and will benefit Chelsea come Salzburg. Yeah, I, I see it both ways too. And I, like you said, I think, uh, it would have been nice to see him make his his debut as manager this weekend, but um, he has those two games, and then I think he has an international break again, which adds more time. And mm -hmm. and if you like you said, if those two games go south, then you're sitting with your decisions and thinking about you know what could have been done differently for a couple of days, and uh, that obviously adds to it. But again, if you you leave off on a high and go into the international break, you come back and you're looking forward to being back and doing the things. So. Um, Gives him time either way before and after uh, he makes his debut. And then obviously going into the World Cup, he has more time to assess the squad and the players and, and some of the strengths and weaknesses while they're away on international duty. So it, it's definitely an interesting time coming up for Chelsea. Like I said, I, to me, it almost feels like a restart. And we go again starting on, uh, I believe, Wednesday it is against Salzburg and then Liverpool, like you were saying. So we start again, we go again. Not a lot has been... Not a lot of damage has been done. We still sit, I believe, sixth or seventh in the table, uh, five mm. points off the top. So uh, things can change. And like I was saying, as a Chelsea fan that's seen this happen for 20 plus years, we almost seem to thrive off of the chaos and the drama and all of the issues that come up with uh, with the managerial change, with player changes, and, and, and more recently with ownership changes. Uh, ben, I'd like you to thank you so much for your time. It was great chatting with you, as always, uh, and we'll definitely catch up in the near future. But guys, it's a new era. Bowley era has begun. It has gone the same way as uh, the Roman era did initially. But it seems like, at least with what the, they've done with the Dodgers, they do tend to give their manager, especially their person, some time. So hopefully that will be the case with, with Potter and he brings success and wins success with Chelsea as well as for himself. And 
and everyone's happy and the pieces of the puzzle, like I was saying, fall into place and uh, things go go well for us. Uh, but Ben, we'll talk again soon. Uh, if you don't follow Ben already, it's Ben Jacobs on Instagram. I beg your pardon, on Twitter and on Instagram, it's Ben David Jacobs. Uh, and there's a lot of detail. If you haven't read the article that he's put out for CBS Sports, definitely go check it out. Uh, ben, we appreciate the detail. We appreciate your friendship and we'll be in touch. Uh, but until then, stay safe and up to Chelsea. Hey, guys. The Premier Chelsea is sponsored by Kickoff Coffee. They are a top quality artisanal roasted coffee. In other words, they're Champions League winner and Premier League winner every single time. They deliver fresh bags directly to your home so you don't have to go to a coffee shop and pick up something. And the best part about them is every bag gives back to soccer charities. 10% of the proceeds go to organizations that use soccer to promote youth social development in the underserved areas. Use our code TPCOFFEE15 to get 15% off your order. You can order at kickoffcoffeeco.com or check out the links on our social media. Thanks.